0: This is lesson 16 in our series in the Gospel of Mark. If I were bold enough to have provocative titles, I would have titled this message, Why is Jesus so grumpy? Or, did Jesus get up on the wrong side of the bed? When you look in chapter 9 and you see Jesus in all of his glory, and then we see him in verse 19 saying, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? Sounds a little grumpy, doesn't it? Uh, And that, I think, is the tension of our text. How is it that our Lord Jesus can be like that in this text, a text which has just exposed his great glory uh, in a heavenly setting? It is interesting to think about the whole subject of the glory of God and its importance. For example, if you go back in the book of Exodus, you remember that uh, at that point in time where Moses sees that it is going to be he who leads the people of Israel to the promised land, uh, knowing their stiff-necked condition, that's not an exciting task. And he says to the father, show me your glory. I would suggest to you that a glimpse of God's glory is the fuel on which Moses ran those 40 years as he was leading God's people toward Canaan. I was thinking about Satan and the glory of God, and uh, you don't have this in your notes, but in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, When I read those texts about Satan and his fall, it seems to me that he was not content with his glory, as great as it was. What he really wanted was the glory of God, did he not? I will be like the Most High. So it's interesting then, in the temptation of our Lord, as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, that in tempting Jesus, he shows them all, him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Notice, not his glory, their glory, and that is the temptation that he thinks is going to cause Jesus to fall down and worship him. Isaiah chapter 6 is another text in which we see uh, one of the prophets of God Beholding the glory of God, and that becomes the basis, the foundation for the mission that uh, God has for Isaiah. And then, if we're not yet convinced, we simply need to be reminded of 2 Peter chapter 1, and that is the text where Peter calls the reader's attention to this very incident, and he says that it was, for him, a life-changing event, and that it has great influence and impact on his ministry and on the saints. So let's remind ourselves uh, for a moment about the context, and that is Peter's great confession that we've read about in verses 27 through 38 of the Gospel of uh, Mark. The great confession comes in verses 27 through 29. You are the Christ. Great, great declaration. Peter has now connected the dots, as it were, from all of the events from Mark chapter 1 up through Mark chapter 8. And he's concluded, as the prophet Isaiah and other prophets would have wanted him to do, this is the work and the person of Messiah. And he is right. But after that, Jesus begins to teach about the way of the cross. He's going to Jerusalem, where he'll be rejected by the religious leaders. And there he'll be put to death and die and then rise from the dead. That was the point at which Peter was not willing to stay on the train. And so he takes Jesus aside, you remember, and rebukes him. And then Jesus has a little word uh, for him. That's really in Matthew's account, chapter 16. But in our text, Jesus talks about the way of the cross and makes it clear that the way to life is death not only for the Lord Jesus but that is the way the disciple must walk a life of death embracing the death of Christ and also embracing death in the sense of mortifying the flesh and following the Lord Jesus so those words have come just before us and and now we read in uh, in chapter 1 of uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 that Jesus speaks of Some of those who are standing there who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God coming. I've chosen these 29 verses as opposed to just the first eight verses because I think you have to look at this as a whole. uh, We see the same thing if we look at the great confession in chapter 8. We could stop with just the great confession But we have to go on to hear Jesus' words about his suffering and death. We have to hear Peter's resistance. And we have to hear that the way of life is death. It is the cross. And so that's one section, and so it is here. And also, I would call to your mind the fact that we have three of the disciples involved in the transfiguration. The other nine are picked up in the last part of our text and just... To point out a, a point of interest it 's interesting that the short section is the section of the transfiguration. The lengthy section is the section with the disciples, the nine disciples down below as Jesus finds them it 's over twice as as long, and so surely we cannot pass that by. Uh, we must do it as a unit. oh, I also talk about the uh, the altitude. If you, I almost t- was toying with my titles, How Your Altitude Can Change Your Attitude. It's interesting that when you start, let's just say 9,000 feet. If this is the mountain we're, we're thinking of, it's, uh, it's a high mountain. It would probably be the highest mountain there. It would be 9,000 feet, actually 11,000 from the base of the valley, but 9,000 feet. Uh, and that's where you see the transfiguration. Then you see the next phase is the descent. I don't know how many feet it was where this question came up about Elijah, but you see sort of the, the descent phase, and then you get down to the ground floor, and that's where everything seems to uh, fall apart. And that's the point at which our Lord says, uh, how long must I put up with this generation? Now let's talk for a moment about the relationship between verse 1 and verses 2 and following, where Jesus says to them, "Some there are some of those here who are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In my opinion, it's very difficult to read those words and not see their fulfillment in verses 2 through 8. That it doesn't require... Uh, our Lord to be saying the, the actual kingdom of God is coming in its full and final form during the lifetime of some of you. I think what he's saying is you will see the kingdom of God, in other, and by the way, it's clear that this is a vision. You will see it, as it were, in the future, uh, almost like Hebrews 11. The, the saints of old saw that heavenly city, uh, by faith as they looked ahead. So it, it seems to me that's true, but if you need further proof, you might just go back to Peter's own words in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, where he calls this, seeing the kingdom of God coming in power. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It seems to me Peter's saying, We saw it, we saw the power and the kingdom of uh, a coming of the kingdom of God. So verse one introduces as we would expect, verses two and following, and does not require the literal fulfillment of that which obviously is still uh, in the future. so let 's talk about the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus as we see it. In uh, not only in Mark, but in Matthew and Luke, I just feel compelled to point out some of the points of interest just for you to have those in mind, even though we have to stick with what Mark tells us in Matthew chapter 17, verse nine, it is clear this is a vision. It is something they see that is a vision. And that, I think, helps explain why they can see Moses and Elijah there. And in the snap of a fingers, all of a sudden they're gone they don 't have to pack up, go down the mountain, whatever it 's a vision that they 're seeing uh, in in matthew 's gospel also mark 's gospel uh, i'm sorry, also luke 's Gospel there is attention called to the face of our Lord Jesus, so that the face of our Lord Jesus is described as glowing like the sun sounds kind of like the book of Revelation in the description of our Lord. But Mark does not focus on that. He simply talks to us about the clothing of our Lord, but we see it's the face of our Lord as well. Here's one that's interesting. In Matthew 17, verse 4, Peter says, I will make three shelters. I will make three shelters. I have to tell you, that sounds like Peter to me. I could say, hey, this is something I could do, Jesus. I could do this. And the other two, it says we. And I think the we is not six, folks. I don't think Peter's saying, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, grab a hammer. We're going to start building. He's saying the three of us uh, can, can do this. I want to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, The disciples fear. We see that in the other text. But this text in Matthew dramatizes it to where they are so fearful they fall with their faces to the ground. This is really an awe-inspiring event. And Jesus then touches them and tells them not to be afraid. Here's what we get from Luke. Interestingly, Luke says after eight days. He says eight days after these sayings, the other two Gospels say... Six. It seems to me that you've got a sequence of sayings and, and that those probably took place and were repeated over, uh, over several days. So it just depends on which sayings you want to mark as the beginning point. I, I personally don't see that as uh, an issue that's irresolvable. And notice that in Luke's gospel, prayer is the context. Matthew and Mark do not mention that they went up on the mountain to pray, and it was while Jesus was praying that the transfiguration occurs. That is not recorded in either Matthew or Mark, but it is recorded in Luke. And it's Luke's gospel that tells us the conversation that went on. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that the three, uh, our Lord Jesus, uh, Moses, and Elijah, were talking. It doesn't tell us what they were talking about. Luke does. And they were talking about Jesus' exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, I find that kind of interesting and a little bit of a teehee for me because the disciples do not want to hear about Jesus' death. Isn't that what Peter just, you know, interrupts Jesus and drags him off and says, we're not going to hear any more of this. (laughs) And here they are. And what are these guys talking about? They're talking about Jesus' death and what's going to take place in Jerusalem. And uh, the three get to overhear that conversation. Another interesting thing, and I don't know why it's there, but Luke tells us that the three get sleepy, which is kind of interesting because in the three events, by the way, Peter, James, and John are really in only three incidents. Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration, and the Garden of Gethsemane. Two out of three of the disciples are sleeping. <laughs> That's not so good. These boys, they need some, one of those pills they advertise on the television, you know, that keeps you awake so you don't fall asleep at the wheel. Anyway. For whatever reason, they grow sleepy, but they awaken. Now, it may have been the, the, the climb. Think about that, climbing up there, you know, several thousand feet. You're, you're huffing and you're puffing, and and maybe it's a little bit warm, and you just, <laughs> just feel like you want to take a nap. But Luke is the only one that tells us about that. They're awakened fully. So they're not dreaming this in that sense. They're awakened fully when the vision comes. And then it says... Um, that the disciples feared as the cloud comes over them, which is kind of interesting. The other two texts talk about the fear of the disciples, but this cloud is obviously being uh, being revealed in the sense of the Shekinah glory. Would you not agree? It's the cloud where God is somehow present, and boy, when they see that cloud descending upon him, that's pretty scary stuff. And, of course, it is from the cloud, that God the Father speaks uh, his words of uh, assurance. So, what's Mark's point of emphasis in all of this? Well, he makes it clear that it's Peter, James, and John. Thought about that quite a bit. Why three guys rather than 12? Why the three guys up here and the 12 guys down here? One of the things that Jesus said in the a parable of the soils was to him who has more shall be given in other words revelation seems to be given in in proportion and in response to your reception of what you have already heard now think about this in relationship to peter peter is the one who says you are the christ Not the others at that point. Not the others. Peter does it. When Jesus in Matthew speaks words of commendation, he speaks words of commendation to Peter. And he says, on this rock I will build my church. And and it seems clear from that text, somehow Peter receives an extra measure of reward. Does he not? He receives something more than the rest, and I take it it's because he has perceived and embraced more than the others. So it's not surprising to me that Peter, James, and John as a group may have excelled above the others. Let me point out, if you're gonna, if you're gonna grade the others, okay, so I've got Peter, James, and John as the upper 10% or whatever they are. Who's the bottom? Obviously, Judas. I don't think you're going to have him up there for uh, you know a reward for responding well to Revelation. So Judas and the others are down there, and they are the I don't want to say the dropouts. Judas is, but but they certainly uh, are not there with the three. The rest of the disciples, the nine, are in verses fourteen through twenty-nine, and that is a great point of emphasis in this text. Jesus is transfigured; His glory is revealed from heaven. Moses and Elijah are present, and they talk with Jesus. And uh, and now I got I got to just say this: Let's build three dwellings. Let's build three tabernacles. I, I I've been pondering that and thinking. You know, I realize in in my fear or excitement in my life, I can think of many times where I've said something really stupid. And and this this is right there. <laughs> it's right there. It's one of the, the top runners runners up in this contest of stupid things to say. But okay, I I have to tell you some things come to me uh, in the shower, and you can tell why I'm all wet. Then when I say them, or they they come to me when I'm shaving, and uh, just in the nick of time. And this morning. This morning I was sitting there shaving and I was thinking, what, what is this? Why does it say in all three accounts, let's build it? I know one of them says I'll build it, but let's build it. Try this on for size. Hey, this is my labor. This is as close as you'll get to a Labor Day message from me. They're spectators. They're spectators. Is that not right? Peter, James, and John are spectators in this marvelous event. The participants are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I think that Peter is sort of like uh, Martha. You know what I'm saying? I just can't stand sitting here all by myself doing nothing. Let's build something. And and, and then I got to thinking about Labor Day. Uh, And I have to confess, this is not very syrupy and sentimental, but there will be lots of those preached today. Labor Day. And we celebrate work by not working. Isn't that interesting? Work is so wonderful. And then I turn on my biblical reference and I say, wait a minute, work is the result of the curse. What are we celebrating <laughs> anyway about all this, right? But isn't there a sense in which we want to participate in the work that God has done? And I could I, I almost busted out with it this morning at communion. When when uh Reese read from uh Titus chapter three, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. Here we are on Labor Day, and we are not celebrating our work, folks. What's going on in this table is His work. And the reality is, He is not going to let us roll up our sleeves, grab a hammer and a saw, and help. Not with redemption. That's His job. And that's why Moses and Elijah, they talk about what Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem. Not what they're going to do. What Jesus will accomplish. And then they disappear, and the only one left is Jesus, because salvation is Jesus' work. But it doesn't shock me at all that Peter would say, come on, guys, we gotta do something here. And I think that's what the building three dwellings is about. Bet you haven't heard that one before. The cloud. God the Father speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. And, and, you know, I've said this a thousand times, but that's just a divine, oh, shut up and listen. See, God doesn't want Peter to work He wants him to listen. That is, he wants him to hear and obey Jesus. That's his job. John chapter 6. What is the work that we should do? The work is believe. Listen. That's our job, to listen and embrace what he's done, not pick up and help him do the work. Only Jesus remains. So what do we have from this account? One, we have a divine declaration of christ's identity do we not this is my beloved son and this comes from the father now those are not words that are new to us i believe they are new to the disciples when you see those words from mark chapter 1 at the baptism of jesus it's before the disciples are called there's no indication the disciples heard those words so for them these are the first indications of the Father's testimony regarding the Son, a declaration of his identity. And therefore, they're an affirmation of the great confession. The great confession is true. God the Father just said, in effect, amen. They're a foretaste of the glory to come. This is a vision, a vision of what is yet to come. So it's a foretaste of the future glory that is to come. And therefore, it's the assurance that the kingdom indeed is coming, but it's coming through suffering, the suffering of Messiah, just as our Lord Jesus said. Now get this. This is the discussion during the descent. They're on the way down. Can you imagine having seen what the disciples have seen Can you imagine the potential, the list of things that you could talk about on the drive home? You know, about, hey, Jesus wondered about this, wondered about that, whatever. What's interesting is it starts with a command from Jesus. And that is, keep silent about this until I have risen from the dead. Don't talk to anybody. My sense is and I may be wrong. My sense is that anybody includes the nine. I don't know that, but he said, don't tell anybody about this until I've risen. Okay, so they're going to they're gonna keep quiet, sort of, but the disciples, the text tells us, fixed on Jesus' words, that is his words about his rising from the dead, And their ears are flapping now, and they're saying, Oh, my back, here comes that thing again about death and resurrection. What in the world is he talking about? But they won't raise the question with Jesus. The text tells us they were talking, I suspect whispering, amongst themselves. Here he is again talking about rising. What is this? So the discussion goes on, and they they ask a safe question. I think, an evasive question, but a safe one. They just saw Elijah, right? And so they say, well, Jesus, you know, the scribes teach that somehow Elijah is supposed to come first and restore all things and then Messiah. What do you think of that? And the irony of it is Jesus turns that conversation back to a conversation about his death and rising from the dead. Look at how he does it. He says uh, this. Elijah, in verses 12 and 13. Elijah must come first and restore everything. Now, it's going to become clear in the context that that hasn't happened yet. He has to do that. But then he says, Elijah has come. And Elijah is? John the Baptist. And the disciples figure it out. Jesus is talking about John. What does Jesus say with respect to John and his first coming? It says, Elijah has come and has suffered just as it was foretold. Now, listen to the way Jesus puts it. This is verse 12, uh, the, last, uh, the later part of verse twelve, nine 9 to 12. And yet, he says, asking this question, and yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What Jesus is doing is overlaying John, John the Baptist, Elijah, and himself. And what he says is, John the Baptist came. They rejected him and they did with him what they wanted, which was... Pop off the head. They rejected John, and they did with him what they wanted, but John must come again and restore all things. Where does that lead you? John's coming back. John came the first time, and he was rejected and killed. He's coming a second time. He will restore all things before Messiah establishes his kingdom. And Jesus says, that's just like me. Now, if you were connecting the dots, as they certainly are not at that point, how does this resolve the problem of Jesus' suffering and later glorification? Two comings. Two comings. The the, the situation with John the Baptist slash Elijah is the same situation with Jesus. He came, he was rejected for who he was, They put him to death, he's coming again, and he will establish his kingdom, just like John. So here they are, asking this harmless Elijah question. And all of a sudden, they're right back in the same dilemma of Jesus' death and resurrection, overlaid in the context of John, but linked clearly. Jesus connects the dots between John and his rejection and Jesus' And his so this, the the uh, two comings resolve the dilemma of suffering and glory. I call verses uh, fourteen through twenty nine the case of the difficult demon. I know that sounds like a Perry Mason uh, title, but it's it's really true. And and let me just point this out: all demons are not the same. All demons are not the same, folks. I think in this case. You're looking at the most difficult demonization that ever came across Jesus' path. That's, that's my case. But, but look at what he says when the disciples say to Jesus. Now remember, these disciples, even including Judas, these disciples have been set out by Jesus, and one of the things they did when they were set out is to... Cast out demons. So in one sense, I can see the disciples, cocky as they were. Here comes a father, says, cast the demon out of my son. Yeah, no problem, no sweat. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, the disciples are just humiliated because it didn't work it. And then they say to Jesus, why was it we couldn't cast the demon out? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be cannot come out by anything but prayer this kind what does that say to you there are different kinds of demons different kinds of demon possession and i take it this one's a 10 on the demon scale of difficulty that's why i call it the case of the difficult demon okay this is where we pick up the other nine disciples the three have been up on the mountain they the three come down with jesus And the scene as I see it now is Jesus and the three disciples are walking along and they come across this crowd. And you'll notice a couple of things about this. And only Mark tells us this. The scribes are there and they are arguing with the disciples. The scribes are there. They are arguing with the disciples. So Jesus comes across this crowd and a debate. What might the conversation be about in this debate? Let me make a suggestion. Mark chapter 1. Jesus began his public ministry, and he was teaching the crowds. And in the course of his teaching, he encountered a demon, and he cast them out. And the people said, this man teaches. Hello. (laughs) With authority, right? With authority. When Jesus cast out demons, it underscores Jesus' authority over Satan. And so they're saying, look, anybody can get up and say anything they want. When Jesus talks, this is what happened. His teaching is authoritative. Play that out now with the nine. What do you suppose the scribes are saying to the nine? when they can't cast a demon out. (laughs) Great teachers, you are. What are you talking to us about the kingdom of God? You can't even take on this demon. Well, it's a possibility at least. Arguing, going on, only Mark includes that element uh, with regard to the scribes who are pressing their case. The crowd now looks up and sees Jesus. And the crowd rushes over to Jesus you gotta watch your pronouns in this text. The crowd rushes over to Jesus, and the crowd says, in effect, to Jesus, uh or comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to the crowd, What are you arguing about? In other words, what are you arguing with my disciples about? One of the crowd, the father of the demonized boy, speaks for the bunch. And he says, I spoke to your disciples and and i I frankly get a little bit of a smug uh ring to this. I told them to cast the demon out, and they couldn 't do it that 's not quite the mood that we get when he ends up saying, "I believe, helped out my unbelief you know now it looks like he 's pleading for mercy, but he looks it looks to me like he 's being pretty pushy with the disciples and maybe with the scribes goading him on so uh Anyway, the, the issue comes out. Here's the demonized boy, uh, and, and the disciples were unable to cast him out. And here's where this difficult text comes. Oh, unbelieving, uh, I put, I think, a parenthesis in your note, and perverted. I say that because that's what Matthew and Luke add. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long must I be with you? Doesn't that sound grumpy to you? Now, you you know, you you could say, the question is, who's he talking about? You could say, well, he's talking to the disciples. Why would he call them a a generation? I mean, you know, he he could say, you nine, you disciples, you guys. (laughs) How long do I have to put up with you guys? You're so inept. He isn't talking, so far as I can tell, specifically to the disciples. In fact, I don't think that he's particularly harsh on them when they say, why couldn't we do it? He basically says, it takes prayer. And some text would add, and fasting. That doesn't sound like a condemnation of them. It seems to me it certainly includes the crowd, the scribes, and the Father. (laughs) And in fact, in my opinion, the whole generation... It includes all of them because this is really rooted in unbelief I don't know whether to spring this on you now or just hold off and and wait for about two minutes to tell you why I think that's true but friends he's just come from heaven he's just come from heaven and somehow earthlings don't look quite so hot Do they? I mean, you know, I'd rather be up there with Moses and Elijah. And now here here are these people, you know, bullying the disciples around and and basically not believing. Well, anyway, we'll get back to that in a minute. Jesus says, bring bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. And here's where this thing gets drawn out. And this demon really is one mean dude. I mean, he brutalizes this boy. And by that, the text means convulsions, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Now, we know that this demon has thrown this boy in the fire. We know this demon has thrown this boy in the water to drown him. This demon is deadly and destructive. And he is hell-bent on destroying this child. Is he not? And here he is again, confronting Jesus and and doing these antics, brutalizing this boy. And and what's interesting to me is is I would have thought Jesus would have hurried it up. (laughs) Instead, he says to the father, how long has this been going on? I mean, wouldn't you as a father say, well, come on, come on, get this thing over with. Here he is foaming at the mouth down there. Solve it. I think what Jesus wants to underscore is This thing has been going on forever. And that is indication of how difficult this demon is. So then he says to him, uh, if you can do anything, help us. Now, I think the word if is interesting and the word you is interesting. I think there's the innuendo behind this because he has just said, I told your disciples to do it. They couldn't. If you have the ability, surely which your disciples did not, if you can do this, then help us. And Jesus' response is interesting because remember, he's just talked about this unbelieving generation. He says to them, If I can do anything, <laughs> do you really think the issue? I mean, here he is just coming out of glory. Do you think the issue is my ability? The thing that's in question right now, my friend, he's saying, is not my ability, it's your faith. If you believe, what about your faith? And, and here's where at least you got an honest word. Do you not? I love this. I believe, help my unbelief. I think what he's saying is, my belief is so puny and sickly, I'm, I'm ashamed even. He call attention to it. Help me, Jesus. Help me believe. You know what? This guy's getting on the right theological track. Don't you think? This boy's on his way to becoming a Calvinist. Well, anyway. <sighs> Sorry about that. So Jesus... Now, what's interesting to me is Jesus sees that the, the crowd is growing rapidly. Here's, here's these, the, the throng starting to rush in. So in a sense, Jesus has been... Uh, if, if, if there's a power button, I know this is horsey. But if there's a power button on Jesus' panel, he's had it on uh, Energy Saver down here when he's working with this demon. And that's why this, this demon's pulling off all this stuff. Now Jesus sees a crowd gathering and he does not want that crowd to come for, for reasons that are evident from other texts. He doesn't want to do that which is spectacular. He turns it up to full power. Flips the switch. And now he says to the demon uh, come out of him and don't ever go back full power what's interesting is even here the rebellion of this demon is evident he's going to do well parents of teenagers do i have to say more (laughs) how many times have we said to our teenage kids and they comply Eventually, but but they also send the message, but this is under protest. Okay, you win, but under protest. That's the way these demons are responding with Jesus. But the point is, Jesus has now said, it's over. Enough of this stuff. Come out and don't ever go back. And the demon goes, but that boy is so weakened, it looks like he's dead. Jesus lifts him up, and that's when the... uh, Disciples, when the disciples get off by themselves, they can't wait to say to Jesus, what happened? What, what, what was wrong? That we couldn't cast that demon out. I mean, they'd done it before. I think Jesus is saying, there are demons and there are demons. And this one was way up on the chain of command. It takes prayer. And if you want to read the text, I'm inclined to do it. And fasting. There are some things that are not done quickly and easily, friends. Have you discovered that? There are some things that just don't happen in one little short prayer. But they happen by perseverance, and this is one of them. I have to point you, however, to Matthew chapter 17, who also adds what element? Unbelief. He says, it is because of the littleness of your faith. Now, if I can connect a couple of dots, I would suggest to you that little prayer and little faith are very much related. Are they not? Little prayer and little faith. Why ask if you don't believe that it'll happen? Anyway, in this text, it is their lack of prayer that Jesus points out. So what do we learn from this? Well, one, we surely see a divine confirmation of the great confession and of who Jesus is. Do we not? We see Jesus as the powerful, glorious King who is coming again and who will reign forever. In glory. That glory is still future, and it has a relationship to the past. Moses and Elijah, it's saying, it is that glory that God has been speaking of from Old Testament times to the present. It is the same promised glory that God has spoken of in the Old Testament. Now, when you come to, uh, Peter's lesson in 2nd Peter chapter 1, it's basically this. Peter, Peter is about to die. By the way, he talks about the, his, his temple. The, the root is close. It's not identical. When he talks about the temple and, and, and he's also just, just said in Mark, let's build, let's build a little tabernacle. It's sort of the same word, but not exactly the same word. But Peter says in, in 2nd Peter 1, I know I'm about to die. And knowing that, I got to tell you this stuff one more time. I'm going to talk to you about what's coming. I'm going to talk to you about the glory that's ahead and the suffering that you're going to face now. And and uh, and not only that, I'm going to write it down so that even when I'm dead and gone, you'll still be hearing the same stuff. Peter's not saying, I'm going to come up with something new and novel. He's saying, it's the same old stuff that has to be said over and over and over again. That's why I'm writing it down. And then he says, I know it's a paraphrase. Folks, I'm not whistling in the wind when I talk about the power and the kingdom which is to come. Because I saw it. Well, he actually says we. Now he's talking about he, Peter, and and James, or uh, Peter, James, and John, right? James and John with him. We saw the majestic glory. Not only are we writing about what Jesus spoke about, we saw the previews. Up there. And that gives us confidence, and it ought to give you confidence, that what we are speaking about is the inspired Word of God. The prophets who wrote of these things wrote under inspiration of the Spirit. This is God's testimony and affirmation to the truth of the glory that is yet to come for people who, all offers Peter, are going to have to suffer on their way to glory. Hebrews chapter 11 and, of course, the ministry of our Lord Jesus. So, this text is like uh, Hebrews 11 on steroids. Hebrews 11 is saying the Old Testament saints, they realized that they weren't looking forward to an earthly city, an earthly Jerusalem. They were looking forward to a heavenly city, and seeing that city, they now lived out their lives on this earth In a different way. That's why Moses chose not to enjoy the present pleasures of Pharaoh's palace. Because he saw greater pleasures and greater glory in the kingdom that was yet to come. And this text gives us this dramatized vision of what that glory is like. We have no excuse as New Testament believers, we have far more than the Old Testament saints had on the subject of that. And here's the the thing I get. I was wrestling with the glory of our Lord Jesus, as you see the transfiguration and the grind, if you would, down here with the demonized boy and whatever. Boy, isn't that a long way apart? Peter resisted the tension of the glory and the grind, glory and suffering, and so he opposed it. What this text is saying is the only link between glory and the grind is the death of Jesus Christ. The only way that sinful men who Jesus can say, how long do I have to put up with this bunch? Those people can be in glory because He took on the suffering and the agony and the penalty of men so that men could experience that. So you see this world apart And the cross of Jesus is the bridge. Is it not? Now, here's my last point. The view of Jesus in all of his glory gives us an accurate picture of who we are. See, when we come to this text and we see Jesus saying, Oh, sinful and unbelieving generation, how long can I be with you? You know what my first effort is? Who is he talking to here other than me? Oh, talk to the disciples. Feel free. Pick the nine, take the three, any of them. Take the father of the child. Take the scribes. Take the whole mob. Just don't talk about me. But you see, when you come to to Psalm 73, and Asaph is grousing to God because somehow the wicked seem to be having the good life and the righteous don't, Remember, it's when he comes to the sanctuary of God that he now sees things from an eternal perspective. And from that perspective, he says, what do you know? God is with me now, and he will be with me forever. The presence and the nearness of God is my good. So I really do have good. What I would like to suggest to you is it works in the other realm, almost in reverse, in our text. Seeing the glory of God helps us to see ourselves for how rotten we are in God's sight. Isn't that what Isaiah said? When he sees the glory and the holiness of God, he says, well, Who am I? Well, I'm a wicked, wretched man. Right on. When Moses saw the glory of God, he fell on his face. Now, come to my next slides. You may giggle, you may not. Now, here's the song. I I actually went out. I would have played them for you if I could. You are special. You are my friend. You are special. You are my friend. You're special to me. You are the only one like you. Like you, my friend. I like you. And on it goes. Now, hey, I'm not against Mr. Rogers. And, and, And I think there are good things to be said. But you know what? That's him singing that song and that is not God. And you know what? Sometimes I think we think God is Mr. Rogers. He's up there in his heavenly sweater and he's telling us how special we are to him and we're unique and we're cool. This text tells us, friend, we are not special. We are an unbelieving, perverse generation. And anything that He does for us in the way of that cross is grace. Grace. And so when we behold the glory of God, my friend, we better start seeing ourselves for who we are, or should I say, for who we are not. This is not a time for a healthy self-image. This is a time to see ourselves as unworthy sinners. And Jesus Christ chose to take the sinner's place and bear that punishment so that we may enter into that glory which we do not deserve. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of this text. Father, help us to grasp this text. Thank you that you came to unworthy sinners. Thank you that you left the glory above to enter into this wretched earth. And just as Paul tells us that there is suffering and groaning that takes place, we see it in your Son. Help us to embrace him as the only Savior and the one who leads us into glory, not by our participation in his work, but by his work alone on the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen.